Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Open our eyes and our ears to the beautiful, wonderful things that you instruct us and teach us today. We are your children here. We want to walk in your ways and your path. We thank you because these things are life to us. And we give you thanks and praise in Yahushua's name. Amen. Okay. So as I've mentioned, we're in Exodus 21, 1 through 22:24, And I did want to say, I want to thank everybody on podcasts and everybody on YouTube, everybody that listens and watches. Thank you for your tithes, your offerings, and your giving. We appreciate it so much because it's what keeps things moving so we can bring these things to you. So we thank you so much for your donations. Um, so I've been saying this each week for the past two weeks. I'll say it again today. So here at Living Messiah, we break down the meaning of words and verses based on the lexicons, the dictionaries of the original languages. This gives us more clarity of what is being said, and this is how we study here. So today, we're going to talk about covenant and a few other things. We want to start in our New Testament portion of Matthew chapter 7. So if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew 7, this is where we're going to begin. So it says in Matthew 7, 6, do not give what is holy to dogs. I want to see if Ward's going to give any comments about this. And do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So to modern readers, the mention of dogs conjures up images of well-groomed household pets. But in the ancient world, dogs lived in squalor, running the streets and scavenging for food. To refer to a person as a dog was a grave insult reducing the person's status to among the lowest on the social scale. Jews had a particular revulsion for dogs because they alone, among domesticated animals, were willing to eat human corpses. As a metaphor, though, dog was a humiliating label, and get this, for those who are apart from or enemies of Israel's covenant community. Now, that's important when you take in context what the master said. Although dogs were often trained for guarding flocks and humans, they were not normally brought into the home. Yehushua's statement means that his disciples are not to treat the gospel message as discarded food thrown to scavengers who are outside the kingdom. And as the master says in Mark 7, he says, And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, master, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. So what he's telling her is dogs, meaning those who are not in covenant relationship in the covenant community. That's what this metaphor meant. So it's awesome when we get clarity on things, because clarity really helps break things down and helps us understand what's being said. So um, we only have this two uh, slides on our New Testament portion, so I want to look into our prophet portion of Jeremiah chapter 34. So if you want to turn to 34. So I'm going to use Jeremiah 34, 8 at the bottom, which is the word which came to Jeremiah from Yahuwah after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with the people. So here we see the king is making a covenant with the people, but it's not the covenant that we see at Sinai. He's just making a contract. He's making a pact with them. So sometimes when you see the New Testament talking about how bad a covenant is, we should be saying and searching out, what covenant are they referring to? Because, as you can see here, they're calling this little pact that he's making with the people a covenant, which it is. It's, it's, it's a contract. So he says the contract that he's making with the people who are in Jerusalem was to proclaim a release to them, and it's tied to our, new, our, our Torah portion, uh, a release to, for them to set their 
uh, male and female slaves to go free. We see this exact same word, and the Hebrew is kero lechem deror. And you see it in Isaiah 61. The Messiah declares at uh, his hometown of Nazareth. He's telling them, he says, the Spirit is upon me. And he says, to proclaim, to, he, the Spirit is to kero lechem deror, to whom? The captives and freedom to the prisoners. Now this is important because we're going to tie this into what the master came to do. And of course Leviticus 25 is saying you shall consecrate the 50th year and same Hebrew word, proclaim a release throughout the land. It shall be a jubilee for you and each of you shall return to his own property and each of you shall return to his own family. I want to mention to you what the ancient kings did when they came into their position of being a king. So they would make a proclamation. Actually, we'll read it. I have a, a text here of what was going on. So it has been established that the biblical jubilee laws were analogous to the royal proclamations of the Sumerian freedom or Akkadian justice that are attested to as early as the mid-third millennium BCE in Mesopotamia and continued to be practiced throughout the ancient Near East into the Greco-Roman area. The enactment of this freedom, also known as establishing righteousness, what the Master said that he came to want, establish righteousness and justice, was very similar to the biblical jubilee, except that rather than proclaiming the release every 50th year, it was enacted upon the ascension of a new king to the throne. So a new king to the throne had the right to proclaim a release. He had the right to do this because he had the, the authority as the new king. And it was custom to say, I want to show the people that I'm ruling over, that I have favor, I have mercy, I love them, so I'm going to set prisoners free. How many of you know that the presidents of the United States at the end of their term, what do they do? Do you see how this has all goes all the way back to ancient times of what leaders did to show the public, or how about, I'm going to lower your taxes? Or how about, I'm going to do, I mean, you can name a bunch of things that the president of this country, and I, you can go on to every nation, and the leaders are doing the same thing, and it's going all the way back to ancient times. But it's trying to show the people that I'm this and that, but you know what? Only a true righteous king who is establishing biblical righteousness and biblical justice will do the things that are right all the time, not just for a moment to get you to look this way and then behind your back and to do something else. That's not what a righteous ruler does. This was because it was considered to be the responsibility of the king to establish a just rule for his people. Now because the master is saying, the spirit is upon me to proclaim this release, Everyone understood that he was declaring to himself he was establishing himself as king. That's huge. And they're probably looking at him, so they're like, aren't you Mary's son? I mean, we know you. You, 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 you walked around in the streets here as a little boy. I mean, come on. Really? So this is what was taking place. So this attribute of establishing righteousness and justice for the people by the king is found in passages referring to King David, King Solomon as well. In other nations, the enacting of liberation was performed by liberation of slaves and prisoners, restoring land, release of debts, restoration of temples, and the punishment of oppressors. This liberation was preceded by its announcement through a messenger proclaiming liberty throughout the land. Now, who went before Yeshua? John. He's paving the way. He's a messenger preparing everybody for this king that's coming and that's going to say, I'm going to now become king and I'm going to establish righteousness and justice throughout the kingdom, his kingdom. This establishment... 
would have likely been fresh in the minds of the Qumran authors as the liberty proclamation by Cyrus. So Cyrus does, what does Cyrus do? He says, hey, you guys can all go home. He sets the captives free. He just conquered Babylon from Persia. He's the Persian king. He comes, captures Babylon. He says, you know what? I'm now the king of Babylon, and I'm going to set all the prisoners here free, and you guys can go, and I'm actually going to give you money so you can build your temple. These are the reforms that he does as the new king of Babylon to show the world how wonderful he is. Now he's going to be good to the people. But there's only one really true righteous king who's going to do the right thing for you, keep his word and his oath at all times, always, forever, without any question. Only one. So this had ended the Babylonian exile, and more recently the liberation proclaimed by Demetrius in 142 BCE played a part in the establishment of Judean freedom and independence. So I'll remind you what the Master says in Luke 4.18, The Spirit of Yahuwah is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And I would say that the, the captives who are being released are all of us who had the death sentence against us. And we're going to get into this week's Torah portion is all about death sentences. To proclaim release to those who have death against them and who has a divorce against them and who has a curse against them. Because he says, I'm only coming for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So... It's very simple, that's who that is. Recovery of sight to the blind. You've got to dig into that word because the blindness is literally those who, who uh, have seen the word but really aren't walking it out. They're blind because they've, 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 they've heard, they've seen, but they're just not doing what they've been asked to do. And to set those who are oppressed. He does not like oppressors. And so we shouldn't be an oppressor to anyone. So the master was totally against the Pharisees today because they were oppressing the poor. They were oppressing the widow. They were stealing from them. That's oppression. Anything you're doing contrary to what God gives us, which is liberation, which is love, which is, a, which is uh, lifting people up, anything other than that, you're oppressing the other person. So I want to remind you that while berit, the, the word covenant, the etymology is uncertain, it might very well be related to the Akkadian Baru, and listen to this, to establish a legal situation by testimony with an oath. So when we enter into a covenant with him, we're establishing a legal situation by testimony of our oath that all that you say, we will do. And he's testifying that this is what I'm going to do for you, and this is by his oath, his word. And remember that blood ratifies the covenant. Okay. So I was reading in, I'm going to back up so you can't see that just yet. So I was reading in the Dead Sea Scrolls, this Qumran text, uh, and it's called the, um, uh, it is the 11Q13. So I'm going to read you what I have because based on what I had shared with you last week about Mount Zion and the connection of Yeshua and his Melchizedek priesthood, watch what, these are what they were saying way before he even appeared on the scene. Watch this. How you can't make connection with this is the Messiah that you've written, that it's right here in the writings I don't get it, but this, this is what it says. In the fragmentary passage, the term Elohim appears a dozen times, mainly, and this is in this Qumran text, mainly referring to the God of Israel. But in commentary on who says to Zion, your Elohim reigns, going off of Isaiah 52.7, this Qumran fragment states that Zion is the congregation of all the sons of righteousness, while Melchizedek is your Elohim, who will deliver the sons of righteousness from Belial, which is the, the, the king of darkness, the king of unrighteousness. So you got the king of righteousness against the king of lawlessness and darkness. Wow. 
how you can't get that. So let's look at Jeremiah 34.10. All the officials and all the people obeyed who had entered into the covenant that each man should set free his male servant and his, uh, each man his female servant so that no one should keep them any longer in bondage. They obeyed and set them free momentarily. Remember what ha happened is they ended up bringing him back again. And it was a big no-no. They set him free and then turned around and brought him back in as slaves again. And God wasn't happy. It was a big mistake. So I want to take just a minute to look at, since we're talking about covenant here, I want to look at this word covenant and jump in anytime you guys want. If you see connections, please. Um, since it's what is happening at Sinai, we're, we're reading about the covenant, what he's telling us about how to walk in righteousness. And so this word covenant, berith, is a feminine noun from this bra to eat, to dine, refers to the festive meal accompanying the covenantal ceremony. With this one could compare the Greek sponde, libation, for covenant, which reflects the ceremony performed when concluding the covenant. The most plausible solution seems to be the one that associates this word covenant with this Akkadian beritu, uh, class for fetter. This is supported by the Akkadian and Hittite terms for treaty, both meaning bond. And remember this word bond. The concept of binding settlement also stands behind uh, the Arabic uh, word, and it means bond, faith, or contract. So Ezekiel 20 verse 37 says, I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you un into the bond of the covenant. So you can see the connection of this bond and covenant together. And so briefly... The covenant is a dominant Old Testament theme that Hebrew always used for this concept. Berith, a broad term covering several types of agreements, including a covenant between friends, rulers. While its etymology is uncertain, it might very well be related to the Akkadian, we have already said this, the, this word Baru, to establish a legal situation by testimony of oath. This is all the more plausible because the Septuagint's use of this Greek word, which means it, to render the covenant word, since the former also speaks of a legal transaction or testament. Similarly, the Latin word pactum, English pact, speaks of such a legal agreement or contract. In other words, all these words are stronger than just a general agreement, especially when we are referring to the covenants of Elohim. So simply stated, the covenants of Scripture are the permanent legal transactions that God made with various individuals and that extended to the descendants, to all of us here. Hallelujah, that's right. So I'm going to read to you Psalm 2.1. Why are the nations in uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. And I want you to think about what's going on today. This applies to what's happening today. Because this word chords in this verse is the yoke and the bond. It refers to the covenant. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take their counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away the covenant from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Yahweh scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I already have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. <laughs> the king has already been established there. They, can do all, they think they're doing this and that, but he's got another plan. Amen? So our Torah portion is in Exodus 21, and I'm going to go through a few things, so Bob and Tammy jump in. Anybody, if you have comments or questions, raise your hand, please. So this verse says, Then his master shall bring him to Elohim. He shall bring him to the what? The mezuzah. Now, Ralphie, can you go point to the mezuzah? Right here. 
Ralphie's point, especially this one. Now, I'd already mentioned to you that I had found that the, in the caves of Qumran, they found mezuzahs. And the mezuzahs were a fragment that had the Ten Commandments written on them. So they affixed the Ten Commandments on their doorframe, which is called mezuzah. And so this man would take his servant to that contract and put his ear to that contract. And he would pierce his ear right here where the contract's at. Now, why is that even important? Why, why bring him to where the contract's on the door? What's so significant about that? Anyone have a comment? Share if you want. Anyone have a comment about why is it important to bring him to the contract? So this man is saying, look, get this. So this man is saying, you know what? You're going to let me free. But you know what? You've been so good to me. You've been a, a, a master that is beyond. I get two months off a year. I get the best food I want to eat. I got the best health care you can imagine. I've got an easy job. I mean, you, you, it's just, everything is just fantastic. Why in the world would I want to leave? You've got thousands of sheep and goats. I mean, we're never going to starve here. You've got a well that goes way down in the ground. I, I mean, I would be foolish to leave. I choose to stay. And I'm going to be here as a servant to you forever. Isn't that what we have all declared to him? This is what a bondservant really means. A bondservant says, I don't want to go free. I don't want to be like the nations who are without covenant with you. I want to be in your kingdom as a servant, as a slave, and please take me to that covenant and pierce my ear so that I can serve you the rest of my life. Because it's going to go well with me. I can't get it any better anywhere else I go. That's awesome. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead, it's probably... Building on what you're saying there, um, it's interesting, I was speaking to you earlier, that the Torah portion from last week that we studied is the Ten Commandments. Why would the Ten Commandments lead into servanthood or the bondsman? Exactly what you're saying. So how does a Jewish bondsman become a Jewish bondsman? We have to get out of the mindset of slave and move more to the mindset of servanthood. Yes. That's the key. A lot of times we hear slave, oh, bad things. That's bad like things. law. Yeah. Yes, bad things. You're under bond. Of a debt which he cannot pay. <laughs> Possibly from something he stole. And when he brought in front of a court, he's called a thief. But anyway, he was sold to be paid for that debt. So a Jewish bondsman is... Again, not looking at it from a slavery, but from bondsmen or servanthood, is to be protected and provided for by the person he is serving. Would have no property that belonged to him because all his property would have been sold to help satisfy the debt. So he owns, we have to give ourselves completely. We own to nothing. Has no worries because there is no property for him to worry about. So when you give your life to the master, there's nothing for you to worry about. Why are we worrying? has no title to anything of value. <laughs> we often think, I have this title for this, I have title for that, when it means nothing. What does it say? He's my shepherd, I shall I not, not want. want. Would wind up only receiving benefit, protection, provision, etc., from his master. And when given a specific task and not allowed to go out and start his own business, which would allow him to fulfill some type of a will of his own, Still, his responsibility is to do the will of the master. Yes. But if you don't mind, I have just a little more. Yeah, go ahead. So, building on 21.6. Then the master shall bring him to the judges, or Elohim, is another word there in Hebrew. He shall also bring him to the door, the doorpost. You said the mezuzah, and his master shall pierce his ear. So the judges, he's taken before, the, the person's taken him before a legitimate body of the community to hear his confession. That's kind of important there, that he loves his master, his wife, his family. When you take a person to the doorpost or the mezuzah, it's an immediate relational guide. 
as you'd see the doorpost as synonymous to the Torah, which you just mentioned earlier when Ralphie pointed to is written upon it, that it would allude to the Torah as a prominence in our lives. And that means the servant is going to be part of our house forever. And in fact, the master is inscribing the mark on the, on the servant. Again, sorry this is taking so long. But you got to picture this whole big thing. The master would put the, all the sharp instrument up against his ear to the doorpost. He's going to whack it. When he's doing that whacking, when you think of the Torah on the doorpost, the Shema, it'll be written on the doorpost of your house and on your gates, that this person is being written upon at that time. It's inscribed upon. That his servitude will be inscribed upon him at the doorpost. And that's still very important. Then you can look at, but what's it have to do with us? If we look back how it affects the Messiah and look at Psalm 46, chapter 40, verse 6, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened, which means pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book that is written to me. I delight to your will, O my God, and your law, or Torah, is within my heart. So David's saying that he could bring animal sacrifices to appease you, but you really want is me, my obedience, my following of your word, which goes back to the doorpost, which goes back to the mezuzah, which goes back to the Torah, that I will be your bondservant, and I don't want to leave you. I love you, Master. Here is my ear, hero Israel, ear, that I may be pierced as I delight in doing your will, and I want to live life under your authority and doing things your way. What's happening in Psalm 40, verse 6, is that if you look at Hebrews 10, dash, or 10 chapter 10, verse 5, therefore when he, or Messiah, world, he said, sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offering, sacrifice of sin, you had no pleasure. And I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book that is written to me to do your will, O God. And it goes on. So Psalm 46 is being quoted here, but it says, My ears you have opened, and it doesn't say body. Why does the writer of Hebrews misquote the verse? He knows that they know that in this book of Hebrews that he's misquoting it, because they know what Psalm 40 already says. It's They've, they're familiar with that. Yeah. So it's not to deceive, but it's tend to bring out new insight. And the insight is, you know, that the ear that David talks about giving God to be pierced, we have to look at it that the Messiah gave his whole body, his hands, his feet, his side to be pierced so he could do the will of God. So the Mazua, which is, ho- is hollow, has the four passages of the Torah in it, but it's a reminder that when you step through this door, so again, you're being pierced and you see the mezuzah, that it is God's rules that you follow here. You're stepping from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of heaven because God is the king here and we do what he says, we do his ways. Amen. Well said. That's awesome. So do you see how deep and how amazing and how rich this is about the covenant and the bondservant, what's going on here, and what's happened for us, what the Messiah came to do, and how it all relates and comes together. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful picture. So only a solemn declaration before witnesses could make the slavery permanent or the servanthood permanent. Because like you said, the guy that's the master, what does he want from the the servant? What's more important to him, that the servant comes and, and, and brings him some kind of wonderful offering, or that the servant is faithful in doing everything that's required? That's, that's worth more to the master than anything the servant can bring as a token or a gift, is the, is the complete trust to walk in all that the master is asking him to do in all that he owns. I mean, I mean can you can trust somebody, that's amazing of a company to be able to say here's the keys to somebody and know that it's going to be done as if you were there doing it that's huge that's the bond servant the rabbis interpreted this word forever to be imprecisely 
meant signifying a long time until the Jubilee year, when according to Leviticus 25.2, the slave or the servant would be released. But this literally is olam. It's, it's forever. Okay, verse 7. If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. So when a parent sells a daughter, probably a frequent practice among the poor, um, is taken generically for in a father's absence, a mother had the authority to sell the child. You can see that in 2 Kings 4.1. She shall not go free. After six years, rather, her status depends on her sexual relationship to her master or his sons. Examples of slaves elevated to marital status are Hagar, Keturah, Abraham's concubines, Mila, and Zilpah, Jacob's concubines. Just thoughts. So, you've heard me talk about the master came to take away the things that there was no offering for, the death penalty. And people, always, they, people have a hard time understanding that there are death penalties in, in the Torah. But there are also sins that don't have a death penalty. You can come bring an offering and have atonement for it. And so when the master came and died, he took away the things that there's no offerings for. They already had. I mean, why does he need to come for the places that there's already offerings for? He came for the ones that there isn't one. So here's the, here's the death penalty, some of them. These are some of them in our portion. So Exodus 12, 21. If a guy attacks, or well, the first one, anyone strikes someone and he dies, he dies. Real simple. <laughs> if someone attacks his neighbor to kill him treacherously and he flees from my altar, you shall take him to put him to death. What does it mean? From my altar, you shall take him. To put him. What does that mean? Does anybody have an understanding of what it means? From my altar, you shall take him and put him to death. So in the biblical times, how many of you remember a story of one of the men of Israel had ran, actually there's two men in the Bible it talks about, had run to God's altar and grabbed the horns of the altar. And there was an understanding in biblical times that if you committed a crime that deserved death, you, if you ran to the horns of the altar, you could plead to the king who had the authority to grant you release. A remission. Isn't that what Yeshua is doing? He's proclaiming release because he's king and he has the authority to proclaim release to those who have a death sentence. So David, remember, he's committed a capital crime. He killed Uriah. And what does he do? He runs to the altar and grabs a hold of the horns because he knows that this is the only place I can come to to plead for mercy that he would grant me a release from the debt. And did Abba grant him a release? He did. Nathan came and told him, yes, he has granted you a release. It doesn't say, we see this word, and by the way, if you look in the New Testament, you see this word, forgiveness of sins. Every single time you see it say forgiveness of sins, it's the Greek word, ephesus, which means release, release, release. But the word sin isn't what we're thinking. It means of, of the uh, penalty or of the, the uh, what was the word I was using a couple of weeks ago? The, the, the punishment. You're being released from the punishment of that issue. And so he's pleading, release, release, release. So it says here, the man that kills his neighbor treacherously and he flees, even if he goes to my altar pleading, from there you shall snag him and still take his life. Of course, unless the master says through the prophet, grant him freedom. Let the one who strikes his father or his mother be put to death. I mean, it ought to be real clear here to any person, if you lay hand on your parent, you have a death sentence on you from the Almighty. Whoever steals any of the sons of Israel, from any of the sons of Israel, having gained control over him, sells him, and be found with him, let him end with death. Let the one who insults his father or his mother end with death. Insulting. Hmm. So death is the punishment for killing, kidnapping, 
offending one's parents. So these are the death sentences. So in regards to covenant, salvation is the fulfillment of the divine promise annexed to those covenants, especially to that made with Abraham. We've got some more death sentences here. If anyone's bull gores his neighbor and it dies, you've got to kill the, if, if he's been, if the bull has been known to be goring. In other words, the, the guy that owns the bull, he, he gores someone the first time, there's a little leeway here. But if he doesn't put the bull away and, and, and be responsible for it and doesn't, pin it up, and it goes out and kills the second guy, this guy's going to lose his life. It's that simple. Hand up. Could that possibly be linked to if you have a disobedient son? Say it again. Could that be linked to if you have a disobedient son and you know that he's doing these things, but you allowed him to get away with it? You know, it would be a good thing to look into that word, uh, when it talks about the rebellious son, uh, it, there could be some links to this that the son has done these things. Well, that's, if he's rebellious, he's not living up to the things he said not to do here. So he's probably transgressing these very commands, which would now give the reason why he's going to be stoned because he's, he's, he's transgressed. He's, he's rebellious. Yes. I just wanted to comment that I think it's great that the father talks about the concept of restitution because that's not a concept that we have in much of Christianity nowadays. Like we even teach our kids if they do something wrong, like you just say you're sorry and that's it. There's nothing else. There's no restitution. Amen. Yep. He's a merciful God. And that's what's awesome. You shall not keep a sorcerer alive. The sorcerer is to die. Death penalty. Everything lying with an animal. Everything. Male or female lying with an animal. Put him to death. Death sentence. Can't bring an offering. Can't do any of this. Now, I want you to notice how many of these things the northern kingdom did. Think about it. If you've, if you've read your text, this, it's a lot of these things the northern kingdom is guilty of. And you tell me they didn't have death sentences against them? This is why they got booted out. That brings the, this, the, the sword in and they slaughters a lot of them. And then they got taken into exile. They're booted out of God's kingdom and they don't have any right to come back again. Unless the king decides to release them of the debt. Which he did. He had came and died on the cross to release them of the debt. The one who sacrifices to the gods except the Almighty alone to be destroyed. Did the northern kingdom do that? Yes. Did the southern kingdom do it? Yes. You shall not harm a guest. Don't oppress him. You were guests in Egypt. Every widow and orphan you shall not harm. If you harm that widow or orphan and they cry out to me, I will pay attention to their words and I'm going to kill you with the dagger of the sword. Ooh, man. You better not oppress a widow or an orphan <laughs> or you're going to get the death sentence again. Hand over here. How many of you are glad we've got a king that has released his, that all that have said, we want to serve you, master, we want to be a bondservant to you, he's going to grant you a release from your punishment. Yes. I just want to comment on verse 18, um, that thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And because... They have allowed the witch to live, and so are our industry, like the entertainment industry, the movies, were filled by the teachings of the witches, and they have influenced so many of us. And they, they um, led us to strange beliefs, and um, what else? I forgot. Um, and even witches has infiltrated Christianity. That's why. Now I understand why um, the Almighty, we have to keep this. Yep. And now because they have disobeyed, now that's what's happening yep. to us. Amen. Amen. Okay. Verse 13. 
But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place which he may flee. What's the place called? City of Refuge. So places of refuge where offenders against the Torah could find sanctuary were not entirely unknown in the Mediterranean area. But the elaborate development of the institution was unique to Israel. The original place was a shrine or altar, and the Book of Kings reports two such cases. Uh, in one, Adonijah, after his failed usurp usurpation of the throne, fled to the altar where he held on to the horns, whereupon after King Solomon promised him immunity, the king is going to grant him release. The, he's grabbing holy horns, and the king is going to say, I'm going to grant you a release, forgiveness of sins, release of the punishment. That's all you see in the New Testament. Forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of sin. That's what's happening here. I'm going to grant you release of your punishment. He left free and unmolested. And the other, Joab too fled to the tabernacle. But in his instance, Solomon did not respect the sanctuary and had the general put to death. Basically uh, uh, pulled him from the altar and, and had him slain. Apparently, Joab was considered an intentional killer to whom the Torah of refuge did not apply. Exodus 21.14 If, however, a man acts presumptuously, here's this word, presumptuously, toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar. He must die. Okay. Verse 23 But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So are we to assume that so-and-so hits the guy in the mouth, knocks his tooth out, so they go grab this guy, grab him by the air of the head, and punch him a good one, and knock his tooth out? This is what's, this is what's interesting. And <laughs> some are going, you better believe it right now. <laughs> So the earliest laws knew of no state interest in the injury, and only later was the public sphere enlarged. As in the Code of Hammurabi and in the Torah, now the state itself was entitled to exact the retribution, and this right was expressed in the principle of talion. This, in turn, was transformed into compensation scaled to the decree of the injury, an eye value for the loss of an eye, a limb's value for the, its loss, and so forth. But actually, we see this in another command here where it's the value is imposed. I'll show you that here in a minute. Yes, go ahead. You may be leading to it in 21-23, but if any harm follows, then you shall give for, and that's the word takat, and that word takat is a tav, ket, tav, and it's used eight times in this verse. We know that the Tav is a symbol of a cross. Where do we see three crosses? And we know that Luke 23, 33, one on the right, one on the left, but the one in the middle provides life, Yeshua, is crucified between two thieves. So when you look at that Tav, Ket, Tav, then you have eight times in that verse, and the letter Ket, is eight, which means life. Hmm. So it all ties back into this. And it, so it's instead of, instead of a, yep. before a, it's instead of. Right. Like a substitute. Yeah. Yeah. So again, if someone, I'm going to elaborate here. So the guy punches his, his tooth and knocks his tooth out. He is to give something of equal value for that tooth. Like he's saying, so a, a life now, or a substitute, this is why the whole sacrificial, sacrificial system is instituted, so that they brought an animal in the place of, or of value, to, to substitute for this breach of the contract, okay? So watch this. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free. On the, here is an example of this eye for eye. So what's the value? The value is the man's life. He gets to go free. 
So here's an example of how this is walked out with the, the, the servant, okay? So I have a slave. While slaves did not exact talion, their humanity was emphasized and they feared better than, or fared better than uh, if talion were to apply. This law differed, differed substantially from Babylonian Hittite provisions. By the way, since we've been mentioning Babylonian Hittites, uh, Hammurabi, and all, do you find it amazing and interesting that they can see on all these other law forms that are on cuneiform tablets and some of them on stone that have been preserved. And those laws on those stones and tablets are oftentimes 60% like God's laws at Sinai. Now I want to show you why. If God's law was, if the Torah has been around all, all along and it was known at the Eden, it was known when they got off the boat that means in all these cultures, they knew the Torah, but they started editing and changing things. So there might be some things that are common, of course, because they knew it, but they made changes. And did they walk in it? No. I mean, you can have a, a law code in front of you, but do you really walk in it? The scripture could tell you not to run the red light, but some people run it. They could tell you not to do a rolling stop, but... Some people do a rolling stop at the stop sign. <laughs> so anyhow, the point is that uh, the, these other cultures had laws that were very similar because this was what was passed on from the Almighty all along. Okay? All right. Verse 2 of chapter 22. If the thief is caught while breaking in, and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. Does that still apply here in, in Mesa or in your city, Gilbert? Actually, it does. That if the intruder, the guy who comes into your home, and he's, he breaks into your home, and inside your home, because you're fearing your life and the life of your family, you do something to him that he dies, you're not held accountable for it. That's where this comes from. He is, now of course it's going to tell you that uh, uh, it's only during what? Only during nighttime. Only during nighttime. I'm not saying that's what the land, this land says, but the Almighty says that this can only apply during dark. During night, you cannot do that during, night, during daylight. Okay? <laughs> now, I got to tell you, what awesome, wonderful shepherd that we serve that lays down such awesome, wonderful instructions for us to live so that we have a wonderful, peaceful life and coexistence with him and each other. Because if we all abide by these things, wonderful. We all understand what we're supposed to do with each other. When you get lawless, that's when you get chaos and corruption and disaster when you have no idea what you're supposed to do or behave. Show me a child that's instructed on how to behave versus a child that's not instructed, and you'll see a difference in the two children. I told my wife and my kids, uh, our household, this, this saying that I heard this week. So the saying goes like this. You can raise your children and then spoil your grandchildren, or you can spoil your children and end up having to raise your grandchildren. How many of you would say there's a lot of truth in that? <laughs> Hopefully the, the people that are raising kids now will take hold of that and realize the, the awesome truth of it. All right. If a fire breaks out and spreads to the thorn bushes so that Stacked grain or the standing grain of the field itself is consumed. He who started the fire shall surely make restitution. That's nice, isn't it? To know that if I've got you know, crops growing or somebody does something, they're responsible to make restitution for it. God's good. Covering all. People say, well, I'm not sure how, to, how life, what are we supposed to do? It's all right here. It's all here what we're supposed to do. We just got to read it. This brings me to a point. 
But how many of you remember the story of, of uh, David and, and Ab, uh, Nabal and Abigail? Anybody, you remember that story? What a wonderful lesson that applies to what we're talking about today. So I'm going to share with you what happened. So Nabal is a very rich man. Matter of fact, the name Nabal means, um, huh? Fool. Uh, I would also say it might even mean tightwad. I don't know. <laughs> so he's got 3,000 sheep. He's got 1,000 goats. I mean, he's probably got, it doesn't talk about all the rest, but he's, this guy's got, you know, he's got the big wine vats that are probably this big around and this tall. He's got 15 of those. He's got oil out the wazoo. I mean, he's got all kinds of stuff. Milk, you, I mean, it's, it, it's like a dairy farmer. I mean, he's got it all. And so David and his men have been in the area watching over his flock and his men, guarding and protecting so that Nabal doesn't lose a single animal and doesn't have any harm come to his men. And you see here what it says here, that, and we're going to see in a minute how when you, when you take, let's see if it's the next slide. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods and keep it for him and it is stolen, the man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. But what if you're taking care of a man's stuff and you're asking for some kind of compensation? Is the compensation due? Watch this. So David takes them in. They're starving. They're hungry. And they go down and they, they hear about that Nabal is shearing his sheep. 3,000 of them, right? And he, goes, he sends a couple of his guys. He says, go down and tell Nabal we... we we're hungry, we need something, we're famished. Uh, ask him to, if he's got something on hand that if he could give us to help us out. So the guys go down, they approach Nabal, and they say, hey, David says, you know, could you do this for us? Could you help a brother out? And Nabal says, who the heck is David? Am I supposed to give my sheep to these people? If I did that to everybody, I'd be broke. Now, I have to confess that I've been guilty of Nabal's problem here. <laughs> it wouldn't be right for me to stand here and not be transparent that I've, had this, I've done this very thing. And I've had to repent for it. And we're going to get into the wife here in a minute. And so Nabal tells David, and David says, before sunlight comes, there won't be a single male alive in hell of his that he owns. Every male that he has in his possession will be slaughtered because of what he did to me. A servant goes and tells his wife Abigail, who is one of the most beautiful women in the land and extremely wise and discern, has discernment. So she says, quickly, go and get, I mean, I, I forget now the number. She gets, I don't know, let's just say 50 sheep. I mean, she gets a bunch of stuff. So much so that a tightwad hears, hears about what she gave would probably have a heart attack and fall down of what she just gave to this guy who was asking for it. All right? And she goes to David as David is now moving towards the house and she comes before him humble, lowly, and please, David, hear the words of your maidservant. I know that my husband acted foolishly as his name implies. And please accept my gift. of all that I bring you today. She says, may it not be that you go and enact vengeance by your hand and bring about sin upon yourself because you didn't wait for the Almighty to do vengeance for you. David says, peace be to the Almighty. 
this woman has come to provide mighty to prevent me from sin and slaughtering men by my own hand and wreaking vengeance by my hand. She has kept me from sin, from her wise counsel. I have an Abigail over here. There are Abigails here who have kept their husband from making big mistakes. Big mistakes. And glory be to the Almighty for the discerning wise counsel that God gives. So it's an awesome lesson in, in this Abigail story. So the, the end of the story is David accepts the gift, does not slaughter the men. Ab- Nabal's heart sinks. His heart, like, I think this is something like turns to stone or something like that. And 10 days later, God takes his life for what he did to David. And what does David do? He recognizes the discernment and the beauty that's in this woman. And he sends a servant to her and asks her if he would take, if she would accept him as husband, if he would come into a marital contract with him. And she agrees. She says, nothing would please me more than to wash my master's feet. says, if we're learning righteousness here and we see David and Abigail walk out righteousness that God Almighty has taught and instructed, here's David, the guy is after God's own heart, but is is he incapable of sin? No, he's about to have a grave mistake. And God, knowing that the man is after his heart, God doesn't want him to ruin his position with him as future king, he sends a servant to warn him. It comes through wise counsel in a woman. Yes. And how many Abigails are there whose husband did not listen, like Nabal? It's everywhere. And there was death, whether it was a marriage, something in the family. But this just proves how faithful Abba is Amen. to honor the Abigails yep. and restore. Yep. That was huge word. Here's a woman that's walking in covenant with God, a woman that's faithful to Elohim, and he uses her. And we've just got to be faithful people. We're, not, we're capable of making mistakes like David was going to make. All of us. transparent saying there was this some acts of Nabal have happened in my life I'm guilty as charged but just as he did with David I had my own Abigail to give me counsel were there times I didn't listen oh yeah did it hurt oh yeah but I've learned I've learned yes by the way, we're going to get into a lot of that in this book study. By the way, <clears throat> yeah, not too long ago, not too long ago, something came up, and I was outraged, and I opened my car door to jump out, <laughs> and she grabbed me by my shirt collar and was like, "No, you're not." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we make mistakes. Now, those of you online. You don't see the height difference between her and him. <laughs> He's 6'8", and she's 5'1". Yeah. So, yeah, it's 
when God moves upon a wife, she's, her heart's moved, the Almighty is instructor, and she knows that what she's doing is for righteous cause, and it's a good thing. So, hallelujah. All right. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and, oh, this is that part about David, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away, David told Nabal, I, there is not a thing that has come upon your men or your sheep. I have taken care of them. So it's an oath before the eternal, and that he shall decide the sacredness of the oath was emphasized by using the name Yahuwah. How awesome is that? Okay. So we're going to talk about this, don't allow our sources to live. The female example was used probably because the practitioner was most likely a woman. No particular type of sorcery is noted. The regulation appears to aim at local practices. Other Near Eastern laws also opposed sorcery. Don't let them live. And if you'll stand with me, we'll close with these last two slides. You guys didn't know you might be shedding tears today, did you? <laughs> okay. Now, if the servant says in response, I have come to love my master and wife and children, I am not going to depart a free person. Remember, if he decides to go, the kids and the wife have to stay. He's got to leave them all. Can you imagine a man doing that? It's just beyond me, but... His master shall lead him to the tribunal. Now look at this. This is not in the English. This is in the Greek. And it ties into what you said. I, I, I wanted to jump over to here real quick. But to, he brings him to the tribunal. This Greek word tribunal is this uh, properly the instrument or means of trying or judging anything, the rule by which one judges. You miss it in the English. So he takes him to this doorpost, but it's also the tribunal of Elohim. And then he shall lead him to the door of the door, the, the mezuzah. His master shall pierce his ear, as you said. Uh, it's, it's the, uh, um, yeah, but the piercing, the hole. What was it again? So the, 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 it was interesting because the opening was the key thing, huh? I forget the word that you use. Huh? Well, that's the instrument. The, the hole was, he used the word for the hole. All right, we'll find it here in a sec. So he says, and his master shall pierce his ear with a small awl, and he shall be subject to him forever. How many of you now have decided to be subject to your master forever? Amen? Hallelujah. All the, I can't wait to see the whole earth come before the Almighty and, and bowing. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess. Hallelujah. Now, Yahushua sets before us the greatest choice in life, life and death. We are responsible to decide today whom we're going to obey. And Elohim wants us to choose him and life. God's angry judgment refers to his of those who reject him. To put off the choice is to choose not to follow Messiah. Indecision is a fatal decision. Disobedience is a fatal choice. Wow. Lots that we learned today. Did you find it? Go ahead. Please, hold on, the microphone's going to come to you. So if you're wrapping up, I think that this um, section of Scripture um, wraps it up pretty nicely. It says in Romans 6, 16, Don't you know that if you present yourself to someone as obedient slaves, <laughs> then of the one whom you are obeying, you are slaves, whether of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to being made Hallelujah. righteous. By God's grace, you were once slaves to sin, obeyed from your heart the pattern of teaching to which you were exposed. And after you had been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. 
Hallelujah. Don't you love it when Scripture defines everything for us? Amen. Bob? Might be a slight deviation, but in this 21, 2 verses to 6, um, it's not numerology, but when you look at those verses, 20, Exodus 21, 2 through 6, which talks about the servant, uh-huh. it contains 76 Hebrew words and 282 Hebrew letters. Oh. So Evit, our servant, has a numerical value of 76. 4 plus 2 plus 70. Ivri, which is Hebrew, has a numerical value of 282. So think about this, the verses 2 through 6. 282 plus 76 is 358, which is the numerical value in Hebrew for Mashiach. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Praise the Almighty. Yep. Something to close by. All right, well, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful things that we learned today. We thank you for teaching us. We're, we're so delighted in your ways because your ways are not burdensome. Your yoke is easy, and it brings us peace and shalom, and it destroys chaos. It brings us into a loving relationship with each other and with you, and we're so thankful that you've made us known what it is all about and how to walk in it. We glorify you and praise you for the lessons today. May you be exalted. Thank you in Yahushua's name. Amen. Now we get to say Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. to say, I tell my wife sometimes, you know, she was created to be my helpmate, to keep from making mistakes. If I was a perfect man, she'd be out of a job. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. All of you have a blessed rest of your Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom.